Now, as I was spending time in this text this week, I, it dawned upon me, and, and maybe this is true for you as well, you know, a great many people know certain things about the book of Revelation. I think that where most people spend the most amount of time is the seven churches, and uh, sometimes you don't go beyond that. And for obvious reasons, once you get past those seven churches, uh, sometimes things get a little difficult. They become a, a little hard. Uh, but people are familiar with the seven churches. Beyond that, they're usually familiar with seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, and they're familiar with the fact that somewhere in Revelation there's the mark of the beast, and then somewhere in Revelation there's that number 666. Um, and then we know that in Revelation there's also uh, streets of gold and pearly gates. And, but by and large, you know, and whether those truths are understood the way that John and Jesus intended them to be understood, that's another matter. But by and large, those are the types of things when we think about the book of Revelation that we focus upon. And I was thinking about it this week. Maybe it's true for you, maybe it's not, but I wonder when the last time you heard a sermon on Revelation chapter 10 was. Now, inevitably, somebody will raise up their hand and say, well, I heard one this week. And so they're out there. But by and large, Revelation chapter 10 is one that gets overlooked. In fact, even as I was spending some time with it this week, there was a lot of things that I mean, I've read through the book of Revelation before, and I've read these words before, but things that, uh, sitting down and thinking about them, I had no idea that's what this chapter was about. I had no idea how chapter 10 comes to bear upon my life today. And uh, for that matter, even after looking at it, why it was included. Uh, but I pray that with God's help, he would be pleased to change those things this morning as we turn our attention to this chapter, Revelation chapter 10. And before we read it, I do want to take a moment just to show how it fits into the broader context of everything we've been looking at and everything we're going to be see going forward. Remember, we're looking at a period of time that, that runs from the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the ascension of Jesus Christ until his return. And we've been cycling around this, spiraling, if you will, over and over. And every time we cycle, it's not like we're looking at the it's same thing over and over again. It's drawing our attention to something else, something different, a different theme, something un previously unemphasized that needs to be emphasized. But as we come to chapter 10 and chapter 11, we're coming upon an interlude. And we've seen this before. Back when we were going through the seven seals, right, back in chapter 6, 7, and 8, Back, we saw there, there was an interlude between the 6th and 7th seal. You remember Revelation chapter 6 ended with the 6th seal, which was final judgment, King Jesus coming in unrestrained wrath, and uh, people of all types crying out for mountains to fall upon them, to bury them alive. And the question that chapter 6 closes with is, who in the world can stand in the presence of this one? And then we don't come to the opening of the seventh seal until chapter 8. What we have is an interlude, that, uh, chapter 7, where the author takes a few moments to answer that question, to apply what's going on to the church of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 7, he, the, in the interlude, he says it's the sealed of Jesus Christ who can stand. Those who are sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The church who can stand there. Likewise now... We've been going through the seven trumpets, and now we have made our way through the first six, 
And before we come to the seventh, which is not going to come for a few chapters later, we have another interlude. Why? We're looking at the same thing over and over again. We expect this. There's an interlude here that serves just as it did with the seal judgments. This is a digression of sorts that serves once again as a beautiful reminder to the church, to true believers, to the sealed, that even as, my goodness, we've seen some horrendous things in these first six trumpet judgments that are going on in the world today, right now, in a world that rejects Jesus Christ, that even as we live in this world where these great tribulation is going on all around us, the church is protected from calamity. The church is protected from all the judgment, the restrained judgment of Christ that we see going on all around us and that will continue until his return. So this interlude serves the very similar purpose to what we saw with the interlude in the seal judgments. Same idea here, again, but just with a a little bit different perspective. As we think about these interludes, just a word of caution, do not see this as a timeout in the action. Again, the trumpet judgments, as was with the seal judgments, these are being poured out by our king from his throne upon a world in rebellion to him. It's been going on since he left, and it will continue until he returns. But when he returns, it will be unrestrained wrath, unrestrained judgment. It'll be too late. All this is continually going on, even as John takes us to this interlude to say, Church, let me talk to you. I know you're seeing all this go on around you. Let me, let me talk you through what's going on here. So this is not a timeout in the wrath. It's still going on. Furthermore, we don't want to see this interlude as linear, as, okay, it's six trumpet, okay, now there's going to be a pause, and this happens, and then, no, it's all going on simultaneously, as we've seen over and over again. But I do want us to see that this interlude, while it's not a break in the action, it is more of a, as John is writing to the churches of seven Uh, of Asia Minor, and to you and I, as he's writing, it's a literary device. It's it's in the writing there that he has a pivotal purpose in these interludes, where he wants to address the church pastorally. Isn't that what the first interlude was? Who can stand church? Let Let me pastor you. Let me shepherd you through, because... Even you, church, have your own struggles, your own follies, your own, how will you stand in the presence of this king when he comes in unrestrained judgment for all of his holiness? Church, let me pastor you through what that's going to look like. Same thing here. John is pastoring you and I. He says, you see all this stuff going around you. You see the, the suffering of the godless rebels going on in your day today. You turn on the television. You, you look at what's going on just down the street. You look at what's going on in your own family. Those who are not sealed, you see the life that they live, the life that they struggle with, and it has all kinds of things going on. Let me digress from all this, John says, for just a moment and, and instruct you, Christians, about how you fit into all this about your place, about your hope. And in this interlude, I hope you expect exactly where he's going to take us. Let me show you Jesus. (laughs) Let me show you Jesus. Because this is what you have to cling to while all this is going on. Let me show you Christ. And this interlude, just like, if you remember the interlude in chapter 7 was broken down into two parts. Who can stand? 
first part of chapter 7 was uh, the church militant, the church on earth. And then the second part was the church triumphant. It was a vision of the church. They've made it. They've arrived. They've conquered. Same, same answer. The church is the one who's... Same thing here. There's kind of a twofold division, chapter 10 and then chapter 11. Chapter 10 is kind of introductory for chapter 11, and that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Some very simple yet massively wonderful truths uh, as John shepherds you and I. Listen, in our lives here in this world, we're not yet where we want to be. We struggle. John here shepherds us. He says, let me show you your place and your hope in all this going on. Revelation chapter 10, let's begin reading at verse 1. John writes, And then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he had announced to his servants, the prophets. And then the voice that I heard, that I had heard from heaven, spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Well, let me ask, and I'll ask the kids here this morning, how many of y'all been on an airplane before? So I'm seeing a number of you, RJ, he's, I expected you to be there. I expect for most of us as adults, we've been on airplanes before as well. And I'm sure if you, you, as you've been in that airplane, you know that sensation when you're taking off and you're looking up and you see the clouds up in the sky, and I mean they're massive, they're billowy. Now if you happen to be flying on a day where there's a storm going on, now those, those clouds are dark, they're menacing. And, and as the, the plane is making its way up and you, you get into the clouds, and, and it's, it's unsettling. Sometimes if in the clouds, sometimes there's turbulence, sometimes there's things, and, and you're, you're riding through, and they, just, they, they encompass the, the, the plane everywhere. You look out, and as far as you can see, you just see clouds all the, way, all the way around you. They just seem to go on forever. But as the plane keeps climbing in altitude, going higher and higher and higher, eventually you go to a place where the plane breaks through the clouds. <laughs> and what below the clouds looked like a very cloudy day or 
you know, even if they were white billowy clouds or this, it was just clouds everywhere. Once you break through and get above the cloud bank, you can look down and you see them below. And what's above the clouds? Blue skies. Bright sun. What's happened? It's a position. You've gone through the clouds up above. That's what John is doing here. What's what John is being shown. As, he's, as Christ is ministering to John, who he himself, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, has been banished to the island of Patmos at the age of, in his mid-90s, certainly not the life he would have expected for himself, though Christ certainly warned and there will be suffering. So as Christ ministers to him, and Christ is using John to minister to those seven churches who, hey, none of them were perfect. Some of them are on the right track, but none of them were perfect. And only if they conquer will they get to the end of the road. Christ is ministering to them by lifting their eyes up to the other side of the clouds, if you will. As the seven trumpet judgments are going on below the clouds, and I'm using that figuratively, okay? I'm not talking about a literal, use it figuratively. As the seven trumpets are unfolding, and we are here, Below the clouds, Christ says, look up above the clouds. And in verse 1, this transition is made where John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, uh, this is, uh, again, we're in this section of Revelation, everything. There's much debate about everything. So it's no surprise there's a lot of debate about who this certain mighty angel is. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I have no idea. I have a clue. I'm going to lay it out for you in just a moment. But at the end of the day, I don't want you walking out of here saying, I disagree with Jake. He's put his feet down, and this is it. I, I'm, I suspect what I'm about to say, this is who it is. And even if I'm wrong, it's close to what I'm saying. So uh, I think we're going to be on, on safe ground. So uh, I, I say that to say, I'm not going to stand here and say, we can know with certainty who this mighty angel is. I will say this. It's not an ordinary angel. This is not like an angel we've seen previously. It's unique from most that we've seen. And I find it unique that John spends a unique amount of time and detail describing this mighty angel using divine attributes. Using divine attributes that are applicable in the book of Revelation only to God, only to Christ. And so for that reason alone, I do think it's well worth our time to stop and and gaze at this mighty angel that we see here in verse 1. I suspect this is Jesus of Nazareth, figuratively. I suspect that what we have here is Jesus Christ, the one who he himself condescended down below the clouds, suffered and died, and was raised and resurrected and exalted above the clouds. Again, I use that figuratively. I'm not, young people, I'm not saying if you look high enough up in the sky, Jesus is above the clouds. I'm using this figuratively, as John is doing here. And I think here, John, as Christ is revealing himself to John, we need to see Christ in this way, during this time of trumpet judgments going on all around us, affecting the unsealed, those who continue. There's something in this vision of Christ 
that Jesus says, church, let me digress for just a moment. Let me shepherd you. Let me pastor you for just a moment. There's things about your king you need to keep in mind as you live in this time of the trumpets. And though I'm sure there's, there's a lot of depth here beyond, we're going to have, I know there is a lot of depth here beyond what we're going to have time to focus upon. I do want to focus upon three things about this mighty angel who I contend to you is Jesus of Nazareth, exalted. We'll focus upon first is this majestic description we have of him in these opening verses. Then we're going to think about the sovereign position that this mighty angel that Christ has on the earth. And then talk about a, a faithful attitude he has to the Father. So the description, his position, and his attitude. Let's think first about this description. Again, as I said a moment ago, there's a lot of debate about who this mighty angel is. There are people much smarter than I will ever be who argue that this is not Christ, it is a representative of Christ. And to which I, okay, fine. Even if it is a representative of Christ, it is intended to be a mirror of the glory and excellency of Christ. And so even if those, even if they're right, I have no problem with saying, listen, what we're looking at here is Jesus. Whether we're looking at him as he is or whether we're looking at a reflection of him in some mighty angel that is unique from all others. We're looking at Christ. And so, but they'll argue from different things about, about the book, and some of their arguments are persuasive, some not so much so. I'm not really concerned about debating that point. What I am concerned about is that we understand this description of Jesus Christ that's on display. I do believe this is him, and one of the reasons is just the, the majestic descriptions that are used here in verse 1. For instance, we're, we're told here, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud. When you go throughout the Old Testament, it is God himself who it is said to, who is wrapped in clothes or, or comes in the clouds. The clouds are depicted throughout the Psalms as a, a chariot by which God moves about. Now again, figurative language. God doesn't have body. He doesn't need a physical chariot. And sometimes we've seen those images, those artistic portraits of uh, some image of God on a chariot. Uh, clouds, if you will. In Psalm 97, we read this, the Lord reigns, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. And so the imagery here we have is of deity itself. He's wrapped in a cloud. What's next? With a rainbow over his head. Again, this is a, an image here that describes, we see this in the book of Ezekiel chapter 1 an image of the glory of God, and he is crowned with a rainbow. And, of course, figurative language. But a rainbow is what? It's a sign of God's covenant, a sign of God's covenant faithfulness, his love, his faithfulness, his promise, most clearly made to Noah in Noah's day when he told Noah, after the worldwide flood, I will never again destroy the earth in this way. Uh, I'm not saying there won't be another final judgment. We've already seen in the seventh seal the whole of creation being folded up like a scroll. But it's not going to be this way ever again, not with flood. The rainbow is a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness. Well, how can a God as holy as he be faithful to a people, even like us, who are, maybe have best of intentions, but we're far from as perfect. How can he be faithful to us? Only through Christ. 
only through Christ. And it makes sense. Christ is the one who has this rainbow over his head, crowned with a rainbow. Verse 1 goes on to say, not only he's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun. That's exactly how John describes his vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. You can go back and look at it around verses 14, 15, 16. There he describes in his hand, he's got stars. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining. And furthermore, if you think back to the transfiguration, you think back to Jesus of Nazareth in that moment where his glory, which was in his flesh, veiled. In that moment, the, the veiling of his glory removed. His appearance was as a bright light. There's every indication here. This is describing everything we know about Jesus. And then finally we read, he's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Again, John's vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he saw Jesus and described him this way, his feet were like burnished bronze. Speaking, yes, of purity, but more so speaking of stability. His feet were not as opposed to others of the day made of clay, concrete which can crumble if you go back and think about that description one of the things we talked about is the stability of Christ throughout the book of Revelation these feet of burnished bronze are speaking of Revelation is going to take us to some scary frightening places it's going to look like the enemy the beast all these things we're about to come upon in chapters 11 12 and 13 you've been waiting for them I know I'm going to disappoint you when we get there because I don't have answers for you but it's going to look like, my goodness, the king, he can't survive this. But the feet of burnished bronze are paint a picture of stability. He's in control. And we're going to see that more in just a moment. And I think these pillars of fire here, again, we want to read the way John read it. As students of God's word who know God's word and know the story of the Bible, we, we know this pillar of fire from elsewhere. It evokes that, that image in the wilderness all the way back in the Exodus where God led his people through the wilderness day and night with a pillar of fire to, why? To, to guide them? To protect them? Might it be that Christ is shepherding and pastoring his church, saying, church, as these trumpets are unfolding all around you, my judgment is being poured out upon a people who continue to reject me, and you ain't even seen the worst yet. Remember the woe, woe, woe? we still got one more woe to go. Before we get to that last one, church, remember what I did for my people in the wilderness? Wilderness is a dangerous place. I protected them. I guided them with a pillar of fire. Here Christ digresses and says, that's, that's who I am. I will protect you. I will guide you through what I'm doing as all this is going on. So many of the images that we see here are very much in line with, we call them Christophanies in the Old Testament, Old Testament pictures of Christ. In verse 3, Christ is compared to a lion, which is exactly how he's compared in verse 5. So all of these things together, again, I'm not asking you to, right now, I want you to, Sign off with me. This is Jesus. 
I just, I think we have every reason to gaze and look and say, my goodness. What is it, Christ, you want us to see? You have portrayed yourself in this unique way, in these figurative images. What, what are you getting at? What do you want us to see here? I think he's portrayed himself for this reason, to encourage us, to meet us where we are, to come to us and give us this description, not so that we have interesting points to debate about, is this Jesus? Is this an angel who reflects Jesus? Is this something else? I think Satan, again, I've said this over and over, loves for us to study the book of Revelation and just sit and fight about what these things are. So long as we never, ever get to the main point of it all, this is Jesus. And we, church, need this picture of Jesus as he's portrayed himself in just this way. And so pastorally, that's the purpose of this vision here, to meet us where we are, below the clouds, in a world that continues to reject Jesus as king. This vision is intended to draw us up, our hearts, our feet are below the clouds. And until the Lord returns, this is where we are, or he takes us home. This passage is intended to draw our affections, our hearts up through the clouds so that we see the cloud bank below and we see where Christ is. And we realize it's blue skies. It's a bright sun where our king has been risen and exalted to. Christians, I'm not saying we all have the exact same life and the exact same experiences, but no temptation has overtaken any of us, but such as is common to man. And I think we would have to agree we live our lives below the clouds. This is where we live. This is where we mingle. This is where we work. This is where our families interact. It's below the clouds. And this is where we will be between the time of the resurrection until his return or until he brings us home. And we live our lives in the midst of a world that great tribulation is going on all around us because of rejection of Jesus and him pouring out his seal judgments, his trumpet judgments, going on all the time, all around us. And therefore, man, life here is hard. Jesus said it would be in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trial. You will have trouble. But here, in the midst of all of it going on, there's a, a pause, if you will, an interlude, if you will, where John says, well, church, let me pastor you for just a moment. Let me show you this mighty angel who condescends down. This is the one who in this season will meet your every need. This is the one when things are hard, when you're struggling, when you're frustrated, when you're suffering, when you're persecuted, when you're afflicted, when, when, whatever the situation is. This is the one who can be your hope, who is your everything in that season of wilderness as you're living in this trumpet-laden world. And do we see this is Grace. This is a wonderful grace of God to recognize us where we are. Now, if we, if we follow that back all the way, we realize we are all by nature living below the clouds, spiritually. Because as image bearers of God, we have all rebelled against Jesus. We have all rebelled against the king, against his lordship over our lives. We have sinned against him. That's the message of the seven trumpets, right? 
That's the whole reason these judgments are pouring out. We were made to live unto the king. We've rebelled against him. We've rejected him. And so now the wrath of God is being poured out in restrained measures, but is being poured out every single day upon the ungodly who continue to reject him. And so once were we. But the grace of God. His sovereign grace prevailed over our wicked, rebellious hearts. God says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And by God's unexplained grace, and you and I will never, ever figure out, connect the dots on this one. If you're a Christian, you became an object of grace, of mercy. And now, even as we live in this world here, this is him pastoring us, bringing us up through the clouds and and saying, lay hold of Christ. He is your Savior, but He's your treasure. He's your hope. He's your everything. He's your nourishment. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Because of the radiance of who He is, because of the fullness of what He's done upon the cross, because of the fullness of Christ, He is your everything. Paul says it this way. You who live below the clouds in Colossians chapter 3. Set your heart on things above. No, you're not living above. But set your heart on things above. Above where? Where Christ is. I would commend to you. That's exactly what here John and Christ is ministering our hearts to. They're drawing our affections up to where Christ is. Say, understand who this King is. And by faith, no matter what your experience may be this morning, no matter what hardships you've been through this week, no matter, go back to Psalm 126 this morning, no matter what the dryness in your soul may be, no matter what your perceived fruitlessness in life may be, set your gaze upon this one upon the throne and find your hope in Him. In Him alone. And this is a tremendous grace of God. And it was true for me. Most people don't even know what's in Revelation chapter 10. Don't even know this grace of God ministering their heart where they need it most. That's what this interlude is about seeing this one clothed in clouds, the rainbow, crowned with a rainbow. And we've already talked about that rainbow being a a sign of the covenant of God's faithfulness. But you know, a rainbow is also a sign of something else. But the storm's passed. A rainbow comes out after the rain has gone away. The sun is now out. And for the believer... We live below the clouds and trumpets are blaring every single day in every single place. Every time we turn on the news, it's a trumpet. When we pick up the telephone and somebody tells us bad news, it's a trumpet. Trumpet, trumpet, trumpet going on all around us everywhere. But for you and I as the sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ, this was the point of last week's message, the trumpets or Christ's judgment upon the unsealed. For you and I, oh, there was a trumpet. And we're going to see it more when we get to the seventh trumpet, final judgment. There was a trumpet for you and I, but that trumpet has passed. Why? Because Jesus condescended below the clouds 
He put on flesh. He became one of us. He lived in this world. He suffered. He died. He was raised in victory from the death and exalted above the clouds. I'm using figurative language here. Exalted at the right hand of God. Our Savior here is portrayed with a rainbow, crowned with a rainbow, because it's a message to you and I. Look, trumpets are blaring everywhere, but for you, Christian, the trumpet has already been blown, and that final wrath has already blown, not on you, but on Christ on that cross. The storm has passed. The storm has already been placed on Christ. Are you living down here below the clouds? Yes, we see all this going on around you. But here he's shepherding us saying, but keep in mind, set your mind where Christ is, on things above, your affections there. See this one clothed in clouds, crowned with a rainbow, feet of burnished bronze, face radiant. See him. He's the one who's come down through the clouds. He's the one who took on your trumpet judgment. He's the one who paid for your sin. I'm getting way off track here, but this is why he sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane. Man, there were countless others who were crucified. There were countless others who suffered. Was Jesus a coward? Why did he not take his crucifixion and his suffering like a man, like everybody else did. And I mean that very, very tongue-in-cheek. Was he some coward? What's this sweating drops of blood? No, he's the Almighty. And that speaks to the massive nature of the trumpets going on around us. He knew that on the cross, it was not about nails and thorns. The Almighty knew that the wrath of Almighty God would be compressed down upon Him for those He came to save. And He would bear the weight of sin. Holiness would bear the weight of sin and suffering and judgment, trumpet judgments upon Himself so that you and I could be pardoned for our sins. You see, so much of this vision of Jesus above the clouds, So much of this vision has to do with making sure even while we're living here, our hearts are there. That we set our hearts above where Christ is in his person, in his work. Is life here hard? Yes. You're lying to me if you say it's not. Is it a struggle? Yes. That's what the message to the seven churches was all about. Set your mind up because he's the one who suffered for you and in your place. Fixing your gaze upon him. It's just a wonderful image that is intended and is described to meet us where we are this morning. Crowned in glory. Face shining as burnished bronze. What a wonderful picture of Christ. How could it be anyone else? 
But there's more to this picture, not just his description. There's a position. Look at verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Now, we'll come back to that little scroll in just a moment. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. The, the, the seven thunders, uh, not going to spend a lot of time there. Not because I'm skipping it. A lot of time, we're, we're, we're missing the main point here. I'm trying to hit the main point. We'll come back to the little scroll in a moment. What I want to draw your attention to Did you note the massive size of this thing? Did you note how mighty this one is? This is one giant angel. We're told here his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the earth. That's huge. And the fact that that description is repeated for us in verse 5, and then again in verse 8, I think Christ intends it to be something. Pay attention to this. The size and the the imagery here. So what is this all about? A foot being on the land and a foot being on the sea. Well, throughout the Old Testament, you probably know this. Placing one's foot on an object stressed ownership, victory. When an enemy king conquered another one, put your foot on the throat, right? We use that imagery even today. The ideas of conquering. So what we have here is this magnificent picture of Christ described, but now as he's described with these burnished pillars of legs, of bronze, planted in the land, planted in the sea, it's his sovereignty over land and sea. It's his sovereignty, his lordship, that he is the king over everything. That is not just geographical land and water, nations political boundaries, governments, enemies, anything that falls within the parameters of land and sea, person, thing, ideology, anything, anything there, he is sovereign over it. Now, this is one of those things where you have to keep in mind going forward. I think this is one of the reasons it's repeated for us here in verses 2 and 3, verse 5 and verse 8, because we are coming upon in chapters 11, 12, and 13, some very difficult things that I think John intends, as we get to them, we're remembering this image here. In chapter 12, we're introduced to a red dragon, who will be Satan himself. In chapter 13, we're introduced to Satan's two chief agents, one beast who comes out of what? Land, and one that comes out of what? That's not, what a strange coincidence. It's intended that when we come upon these things, the careful reader will remember that everything we see coming forth out of these things here, make no mistake about it, these imposters rise up and do some pretty heinous things. But note, your king has his feet over land and see he is sovereign over it all. Do you see how he's pastoring his church? And Satan has loved the church of Jesus Christ being scared to death over these images in chapters 12 and 13. And please don't hear me saying that they're insignificant. But man, we've exalted these things higher than Jesus in some instances. And here the careful reader is to remember in this interlude, these trumpet judgments are going on all around people of God. But in the midst of it all, 
king is on his throne. He's sovereign over it all. Jesus stands over everything. He's towering over it. This massive figure of him, huge feet here and here. He straddles the globe. It's all his. That's intended to be incredibly comforting to you and I, who below the clouds, it can oftentimes feel like things are out of control. It can often feel like Satan and remember the hordes of locusts, the demonic activity, the uh, fifth and sixth uh, trumpets that we saw. It can often feel like, man, these things are ruling the day. And if we're honest, man, there's fear about things we see on the news. There's fear about what we see going on in our, our, our own cities, in our own families, in our own hearts. The message here is that all of it's under the sovereign control of our king, our savior. All of the kingdoms of the world belong to him. Satan, we talked about it last week, I won't belabor it. He's a pawn in Jesus' hand. Satan thinks he is scheming against Christ to dethrone him, what he doesn't know. It is the king who is using Satan and his tactics to achieve the king's ultimate plans and purposes. And I was thinking about this imagery. Some of you young people may know that mythical figure, Atlas, right? You've seen Atlas before, that massive, strong figure who's got the weight of the world upon his shoulders, right? He's kind of hunched over. The picture there is of great strength, great power. It's a mythical figure. This is figurative language, but it is a real man. Christ, this is real. The God-man, exalted, sitting at the Father's right hand, sovereign over the globe. Sovereign over everything. So much so that uh, we read in, in Job that the world is like a drop in the bucket compared to his glory, his greatness. It's like a, a pebble in the sand compared to him. Christ is greater than Atlas. And right now, he did come down below the clouds in flesh, but he's been raised up high. And he holds the detail of all of life in his hand. You see how John is pastoring the church, pastoring us who live among these trumpet judgments going on all around us every day. We're going to walk right out of here. Still going on. We'll find out what we missed while we've been in this room focusing upon Jesus. There's one more piece to it. The attitude of this one. I want us to gaze at the attitude. We've seen the description, the position, and now the attitude. We're told in verse 2 about this little scroll open in his hand. Again, what is it? I link it to the scroll that Jesus took from the right hand of God going all the way back in chapter 5. There's reasons why. Without that linking, there is absolutely nothing to clarify what this is. That seal was closed. Jesus unsealed it. He opened it. What is the status of this little scroll that's handed to John? It is open. So we see this little scroll that's being passed from God to Christ and and, and here to John. It could be it's an abridged version. Again, we're, that, this begins just reading into things. 
What was the scroll ultimately? It was the eternal plans and purposes of God before the foundation of the world for his glory. Someone had to execute it. Jesus did. Jesus did. And so now in ministering to John below the clouds, in ministering to the churches below the clouds, those secret things of God that were revealed, right? The secret will of God we can talk about in that scroll that are unique to God. Maybe this abridged version is the things he's willing to reveal, willing to show. I have no problem with saying maybe this has to do with the word of God that's being handed to him. The revealed will of God, the things that he does share. Again, so much speculation here. And do not get caught up in what this is. Get, get caught up in what does this mighty angel and, and, and John do with this scroll. Here we see an oath that is made in verse 5. And this is where the, the rubber meets the road. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. This must be pretty serious. Swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. There's an oath that, this, that Christ makes here. An oath that he makes to the Father. What is it? It's this. When the seventh trumpet sounds, I promise you, that's it. That's the oath he makes here. When that seventh trumpet comes, there will be no more opportunity for repentance. There will be no more chances for unbelievers to renounce their self-righteousness before a holy God. When that seventh trumpet sounds, I swear to you, Father, judgment day is here. Final judgment. And in that moment, the consummation of all things. In that moment, that which was begun, not even in Genesis 1-1, that which was begun in the mind of God in his triune existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world, which came to bear in Genesis 1 when God started the ball rolling. All those mysteries of God that have been unknown to us but have been unfolding through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the prophets, the gospel, Jesus, the church, Revelation, is. It's starting to make more sense. De dots are In that moment, I swear to you, Father, it will all make sense. The mystery will be no more. It will become clear. Everything that in days gone by revealed Christ, everything that revealed the purposes of God, things like the Passover, the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the kings, the prophets, Israel, lamb, blood, festivals, feasts, all in that moment, Dad, everything, I'm using that tongue-in-cheek, Father, Holy God, everything will come to light. And you will be seen for all that you are. You will punish all evildoers in that moment. Your people, you're sealed by the blood, by my blood, will be vindicated. The glory of eternal life, John 17, this is eternal life, that they know me, the one true God. 
will be fulfilled perfectly. The angel here who I believe is Christ swears on the very nature and character of God what God has begun he will complete. And again, pastoring us this is a great comfort to suffering Christians whose lives are, they're clinging to Christ, they're clinging to the hope of eternal life, where there, there will be no more tear. There, there will be no more suffering. There, there will be no more sin. But that's not the case now. Now, in sanctification, we should be growing. We should be maturing in those things. But that's not until then. And here, the comfort is, he who began this work in you will see it through to completion. I swear upon the greatest thing I can swear upon, God himself, Christ says, that it will come to pass. Church, you don't have to worry that in the last days, which run from the resurrection of Jesus until his return, you don't have to worry about surprises. You don't have to worry about some cosmic event coming up that may derail the plan. All this has been set in stone. Christ will accomplish what he came to do. Christian, the message this morning is very simple. It's a gazing upon Jesus Christ. It's a pastoring, a shepherding of the church who lives in the day of these trumpet judgments. The great tragedy is Revelation 10 has been so underutilized. The very things that you and I desperately need in our own hardship, our own afflictions, our own sufferings, our own trials, our own persecutions, the things that the seven churches were going through, reflective of what we're going through, the, the things that we need to find hope and, and joy and satisfaction is in Revelation 10. But we've drifted away from it and made Revelation about so many other things. So what do we do with it? I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this section not because it's unimportant, but for the sake of time. What was John supposed to do with this information, with this scroll? We're told in the second section of chapter 11, come to me, come and be bold, take it, eat it, take it in, ingest it, know it. It will be bitter in your belly. It will be sweet upon your tongue. Why sweet? The book is sweet in his mouth because of the joy and the delight of what God's word is about. It is not about principles and rules. This, it is about Jesus and declaring the glories and the excellencies of Jesus. And when you see Jesus, oh, there's sweetness there for every believer. And how that Jesus, the one above the clouds, in his person and work, is fulfilling the purposes of God down below the clouds in our lives, even through the most difficult of times. Man, that's sweet. And if it's not sweet, then our hearts are incredibly hardened. What a sweet thing to see our sovereign king crowned in a rainbow, face of glory, holiness, purity, feet of burnished bronze, stability. Everything down here is being worked out perfect. But why is it bitter? It sounds awfully good. What makes it bitter? Because the, the scroll also lays out life down here. 
It's hard. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, our own sin, battle against our own sin, Satan, the world. What was the church in Asia Minor going through? Compromise with the world? They were being pulled away from Christ? There was persecution by the Roman government? All that symbolic of the very thing that the church in every age has struggled with. There's sweetness, but there's also bitterness. But it's to be expected. The path to glory has always been the way of the cross, right? Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. But that doesn't mean it's easy. So what does this mean for us today? We have Revelation 10. We have the scroll, if you will. It is not enough to be a scholar of the Bible. It is not enough to do your daily Bible reading and you know chapter and verse. I hope we that must be a fundamental place to begin. But it is not enough to know God's word intellectually. It is not enough to know the structure of the Bible. It is not enough to know. I read it. I believe it intellectually. I believe I'm a sinner intellectually. I believe Christ lived, died, and rose again intellectually. I repent of my sin intellectually. I turn to Jesus intellectually. Every day I get up and read my Bible intellectually. I look up to Jesus Christian life, what John is pointing us to here is something experiential. Not mystical. Something that you take and you digest. As with the words of Jeremiah, thy words were found and I did eat them and they were words to me, the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. You see, it's Christianity and the, the word of God in our lives showing us who Christ is and his rule over things is intended to be experiential. You taste it. You don't just take it up here and then just run with it. You bring it to bear upon your, your deepest hurts and needs. Think about uh, two men sitting down to have a pizza. One has stomach cancer, the other one doesn't. The one with stomach cancer can't eat pizza. But he can sit there and study the pizza. He can sit there and he can give you an hour-long lecture about pizza. Crust, buttery crust, we can kind of go into what it's all about. There's cheese, there's pepperoni. That individual can intellectually give you a long lecture about pizza. The other one and eat it, and taste it, and experience it, down at that deepest point of hunger in his belly, and it satisfies that belly. He can taste it in his mouth. Let me ask you, who really knows pizza there? The one who's tasted it. The one who felt it satisfy them at that deepest point of hunger, of need, of despair. That's what the Word of God, that's what Revelation 10 is intended to be, to nourish the church of Jesus Christ, to sustain us, to meet us at our deepest point of struggle and hardship, and to show us Christ, to set our minds above, above the clouds where Christ is. And so the angel's words to John are true for us as well. Revelation 10, all of Revelation all of the Bible, eat it, swallow it, drink it, sleep it, think it, love it, live it. Do we know the Jesus of Revelation chapter 10? Not intellectual categories of theology. Do you 
know, like the one who eats pizza and brings it to Do you know Jesus? Revelation 10. Where is it this morning you're struggling most? Revelation 10 might be Christ's pastoring your soul where you need it most. So take it. This week, eat it. Don't just study it. Don't just listen to your favorite pastor on the radio. What did he have to say about Revelation 10? Feel free to do that. You yourself prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the glory revealed here in Revelation 10. And you taste it, meditate on it, memorize it. Let it marinate in your soul. And then cling to the one Revelation 10 is all about. Jesus Christ.